0: And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. (laughs) Genesis chapter 25 is where we're going to be resuming you remember last time what we looked at. We looked at basically seven or eight verses that talked about the Toledoth of Ishmael. That was the account or the generations of Ishmael, the genealogy of Ishmael, the record of Ishmael. It was basically, you remember, we talked about how Genesis is divided into sections. And this key word here, Toledoth, is kind of the key to the next section. It tells you, hey, you're crossing from one section into the next. So we looked at that one, and it was after finishing the Toledoth of Terah, which is where we had Abraham as our main figure, all right? One of the things that you notice is oftentimes the Toledoth is not about the person named as much as the person named plus their descendants or especially focusing on their descendants. So the Toledoth of Terah was mostly going to be about his son, Abraham. And then we're going to enter in today to the Toledoth of Isaac. It's going to be verse 19. The interesting thing is, as we read through these, you remember that I spoke about the total of those being of varying lengths. All right? The one that had to do with Abraham, I mean, that one was almost 14 chapters long. And then we get to Ishmael, and it's seven verses. <laughs> and now we go into Isaac, and we're going we're to be looking at more than 10 chapters on this one. All right? So it was kind of a quick transition. It's kind of as if the narrator of the text wanted to tell us, okay, here's Ishmael, and moving on. Mm-hmm. All right? So now we're into Isaac, the son of promise. And again, if we're going to see this formula where it's not just about Isaac. It's going to be mostly about his descendants. We're going to only spend a little bit of time on Isaac before we find out children are born. I mean, children are going to be born here in just a couple of verses. So six verses until the actual children are born. Verse 20. Somebody mind reading verse 20? I apologize. We didn't read verse 19. I guess we should start there, huh? All right. <laughs> uh, Gabriela, do you mind reading verse 19? This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Excellent. Thank you. All right. So there we, we've satisfied verse 19. We've (laughs) talked about the total of the oath already. Now, verse 20. Somebody mind reading verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethel, the the Syrian of Pedham, Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Excellent. Very good. Thank you. Laban the Syrian. Some of your versions might have Aramean. Right. The only reason I bring that up is because we're looking at those as basically synonymous. It's not like an error in the text, and it's not like, oh, one version's right and one version's wrong. All right. So we've got a couple different people named here, though. We've got Isaac, Rebecca, Bethuel, and Laban. Do you guys remember Bethuel and Laban? That was a, that was from chapter 24. Bethuel was Rebecca's dad. Laban was Rebekah's brother. Mm-hmm. And you remember Abraham sent a servant to that faraway land. Mm-hmm go find a wife for my son, Isaac. And the servant went there and prayed to God, please bless my trip. And then gave her some very expensive gifts. Laban saw the gifts and went, ooh, nice. Yeah, let's go bring this man in. So that was, the, that was the background you'll remember from that story involving Bethuel and Laban. We haven't seen them since then. But here we have a mention of Isaac and Rebecca being husband and wife. So Isaac is how old when he gets married to Rebecca? 40 years, 40 years old. So do you remember how old Abraham was when he died? And now you're going, oh, wait a minute, what was it? He was, wasn't he? He was old. He was 175. 175 years old. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a little while. How about this? I'll ask this question. How old was Abraham when Isaac was born? Do you remember that was one? He 90, 70, 90. Close. Sarah was 90. Abraham was 100. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Abraham was 100. So if Isaac is 40 in this in verse 20, how old would Abraham be? 140. He hasn't died yet. But we've already read about his death. How can we get over that? No, basically the narrator has already passed the torch to Isaac. The story is going to focus on Isaac, but I just want you to realize Abraham's actually still alive at this time. So it's kind of interesting to realize that Abraham is actually going to be alive for another 35 years from this verse verse 20 from the time that Isaac is 40 years old. Moving on here, you also have the mention of Bethuel the Syrian of Padan Aram. Padan Aram. That's Upper Mesopotamia. And I've got that on the map up here. We looked at that general area before, especially in chapter 24, when Abraham's servant was sent over into that area. But in case you're you know, kind of wanting a little bit of a refresher, this is a more modern map. This is a more ancient map, but you can see it shows the same land masses. It's the same general areas. This is the uh, Euphrates River and the Tigris River right here. And in between those two rivers is Mesopotamia, all right? Over here, that's the area of modern day Iraq and northern uh, northeastern Syria. All right, so that's the area we're talking about. Haran is up in here, which is basically really close to the border of Syria and Iraq, modern-day Syria and Iraq. All right, and that's most likely the area that Abraham sent his servant in So here we have just a reminder, the is giving us a reminder of this location. You might say, why is he bothering to do that? Is he just reminding us of where we've been so far in the story? Well, there is that, but there's also where we're going to be going in the story because eventually Jacob is going to flee and go there. Alright, that same place where Rebecca came from. So here we have Isaac was forty years old when he took Rebecca's wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. And then verse twenty-one. Somebody mind reading verse twenty-one. Isaac pleaded with the Lord to give Rebekah a child because she was childless. So the Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and his wife became pregnant with 20. So here we find that Rebecca is childless, she's barren. Have we seen this before? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's been a really big key theme, right? With whom? Sarah. Sarah. Exactly right. Isaac's mom, Sarah. What was the solution that was tried with Abraham and Sarah? Do you remember? Hagar. Hagar. How'd that work out? Not so good. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is you looked at that situation with Abraham and Hagar. Abraham, if you remember when they went to Gerar in the land of Abimelech, And God closed the wombs of Abimelech's wife, Abimelech's female servants. And it even suggests from the text that did something with Abimelech as well so that they couldn't have children. And it was that whole issue of took Sarah as a wife and God's protecting and preserving Sarah in that situation. So Abimelech finds out. Somehow he finds out that God has done this to me. And so the whole situation ends with Abraham praying for Abimelech. Because of the barrenness. And Abraham prays and God restores the health of Abimelech, whatever the condition was, I don't know. But it says that God healed Abimelech and God opened the wombs of Abimelech's wife and God opened the wombs of Abimelech's female servants. So Abraham had prayed for that situation involving those people. But interestingly, we don't have any record of Abraham actually praying for the situation involving Sarah. But they ended up resorting to this arrangement that customarily was appropriate at that time, but God wasn't really interested in that being the solution, where they took Hagar and you had Ishmael and then all the drama that went along with that. All right. So here's Isaac in the same situation his dad was in. Here's Rebecca in the same situation that her mother-in-law was in, and probably influenced somewhat by stories that mom and dad told him along the way or perhaps even at this time were coaching him because Abraham's still alive. Saying, hey, look, you know what? Don't do the whole maidservant thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, just pray. (laughs) Can I just tell you from my mistakes? Just pray, all right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that wonderful if our kids would learn from our mistakes? Too bad that they don't always do that, though. Sometimes they have to make their own mistakes. But here's a situation. Perhaps dad is coaching them. Learn from my mistakes. So we have Isaac actually praying for his wife. But does anybody's version have in verse 21 the word praying? I'm just curious. Mine says pleaded. Prayer. Prayer. Okay. You've got prayer as well. Okay. It's actually a really strong word. The word that the Hebrew word that's there for that is atar. And it means more than just praying. Like we've been praying, we prayed, But this prayer, it's a stronger form of prayer in that it's known for its fervency and even effectiveness. Okay. So it's a really anguished prayer, if you will. It seems to have worked (laughs) because by the end of the verse, she ends up conceiving. So he's praying, not for himself, though. You notice he's praying for his wife. And we take it for granted. Yeah, of course. I'm going to pray for somebody. If somebody has a need, I'm going to pray for them. But I remember one time being plagued with this idea of why should I pray for other people? Can I even pray for people? Do I even have the power, the authority to pray for somebody else? Because what good is it going to do? Dear God, I pray that you would save my dad. If my dad's going to resist God, what does my prayer do? All right? I can't save him. And God's not going to overcome his will in the sense of you know, beating him down and, and saving him. So what good does my prayer do to pray for somebody who doesn't want it, who doesn't need it, doesn't ask for it, and isn't interested in the result I'm looking for? right? And so I went through this period where it was kind of like, am I even supposed to pray for people? The word that we use in praying for somebody else is intercession. It's interceding. And we've seen this before. We've looked at Abraham. He's been a good example to us about interceding. And it's very appropriate. The Bible would teach you as you go through your study of the Bible that, yes, praying for somebody else is appropriate, not only appropriate, it's something that you would see in a healthy prayer life. And there are lots of examples of praying intercessory prayers, praying on behalf of somebody else. I've got just a really short list here for you. I'm going to go too fast for you to write these down, but then I'm going to summarize them at the end. <laughs> but if you want to copy my notes later, event I can see you right now. You can have a copy of my notes. <laughs> uh, some of the examples. We have Abraham praying that God's favor would be upon Ishmael. We have Abraham praying for the residents of Sodom. We have an unnamed servant sent by Abraham praying that the Lord would show kindness to Abraham by granting him success and finding a wife for Isaac. Moving on now beyond the stuff that we've already looked at, going through the Bible as well. Moses praying for Pharaoh during the time of the plagues. Moses praying for the Hebrew fighters engaged in a battle. Moses praying for the people of Israel at the golden calf incident, that God won't consume them in his wrath. Again, Moses praying for people being burned by God's wrath. That's in Numbers 11. Numbers 12, Moses praying for his sister's healing. Numbers 14, Moses prayed for the people not to be slayed by God in judgment. You know, people kept making mistakes. God kept saying, I'm just move out of the way. I'm just going to take care of this. I'm just going to wipe the earth of these people. And Moses interceding, praying on their behalf. We have uh, Job praying for his friends after giving him bad advice. God said, hey, you guys need to talk to Job and he needs to pray for you guys and you know then we'll be good. Uh, Guy was a little upset about the, the advice they were giving to Job. Samuel praying for the people of Israel. David for the people of Israel during the plague sent by God. David for his son Solomon for a heart to serve the Lord. Solomon for righteous defendants to be justified if falsely accused. An unnamed man of God praying for King Jeroboam's healing. Elisha praying for the resurrection of a dead child. Hezekiah praying for the people of Israel in sins of improperly observing Passover. The psalmist inviting his hearers to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Exiles to pray for the cities of the lands of their captors. That's a weird one to me. You're taken away, prisoner, hauled away from the land that you're used to. You're taken into a foreign land, the land of your enemies. And God says, pray for those cities, the well-being of those cities where you've been taken to. That's kind of strange. Ezekiel praying for the nation under God's judgment. That one seems kind of appropriate today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Praying for the, for the nation. Right. Daniel praying for the national sin, that sin of turning away from the Lord. Nehemiah praying for the people of Israel in their national sins. Jesus praying for Peter, a centurion praying for healing for his servant. Jesus praying to God the Father for God the Father's protection over his disciples. Jesus, for those whose actions led to his crucifixion. Remember that? Don't hold this against them. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, praying for his murderers. Peter and John, praying for believers in Samaria to receive the Holy Spirit. The early church, praying for Peter while he's in prison, praying for his deliverance. Believers in Corinth, praying for Paul. Believers in Philippi, praying for Paul. Philemon, praying for Paul. Paul, for the salvation of his fellow Jews. Paul, for believers in Ephesus. Paul, for believers in Philippi. Paul and company for believers in Colossae, Paul and company for believers in Thessalonica, Paul for those who deserted him, believers to pray for the sick, believers to pray for fellow believers living in sin, believers to pray for all the saints, believers to pray on behalf of all men, believers to pray for national leaders, and then Jesus even instructs all of us to pray for those who persecute us. Oh, there's a there's that's a big category, there's a whole lot going on here. All right, let me summarize it in this way. I see a couple general ones. It's appropriate to pray for somebody else for God's favor to be upon somebody, for God's guidance, for God's forgiveness, for God to heal, for God's protection, for the Holy Spirit, for deliverance, for salvation. And then who would we pray for? Fellow believers, all the saints, all men, national leaders, and even those who would persecute us. That's a lot of praying. (laughs) So when we're at home and we're doing our prayers with our kids at night, and we're just praying for uh, God, bless me, bless this person that I'm praying with, and that's it, we're leaving out an entire realm of prayer that God is asking us, even modeling for us, showing us that we need to be praying for others as well. And it's appropriate to ask for God to save somebody who's not saved, even if they don't want to see that result, even if they don't want it, still pray for it. How would you pray for your enemy? How would you pray for your enemy? I think in that situation I would pray, God, I pray that you would help them to see my position, my place. I pray that you would grant me grace and favor in their eyes. I pray that you would bring them a change of heart. I pray that you would help them to see the errors of their ways or how they're displeasing you or open their eyes to see what your will would be for them are just some of the ones that would come to mind. And I guess it would be different for every situation. Um, If there was something more specific that you knew of, I guess you could pray specifically too. You know, I pray that you would help this person to see that this is what's going on and that they need, you know, this is a solution or something like that. Great question. Very good. So intercessory prayer, definitely uh, appropriate, definitely something that you should see in a healthy prayer life. Some other things as well. This word is actually used typically for requesting the removal of an unpleasant situation. But sometimes we don't have the situation removed for us. Sometimes the circumstances aren't the things that get changed. Sometimes it's us that gets changed. Here's an interesting thing to consider, though. Isaac's praying for his wife. She's barren. The promise is moving from Abraham into Isaac's life. And it's going to continue on. The promises have all had to do with descendants. Isaac's married to a woman who can't even bear children. And you got to wonder if he's thinking, you know what, that servant, when he went to get her... Everything was perfectly laid out by God. There was no doubt that this was the right woman. But here I am, God. We're married, and we're at a roadblock. Everything's stopped. None of this is in my control. I can't do anything. I can't get past this roadblock. It's up to you, God. And we find out that he ends up praying for 20 years before she's able to conceive. 20 years. For 20 years, God, why am I going through this right now? I don't understand. Did I do something wrong? Did my wife do something wrong? Because we started well. We know that this was an arrangement you made. We know that we're in the place that you brought us to, but we're stuck. We can't get out. We can't do anything on our own to get out. It's up to you, God. It's your two. It's your three. It's your four. It's your five. All the way through feeling like... Why Am I in this long, dry spell? What is it, God, that you want me to learn? I think it's important, too, for us to know that how long it took before that your prayer got answered because we want the prayer answered like this yeah, you know, within mm-hmm. a day or as soon as we finished mm-hmm. praying it. And so, to know that they were faithful 20 years or whatever, and there's no indication that there's any deficiency in their praying. Mm-hmm. Whereas you know that there's people today that will tell you if you don't get what you asked for, you didn't ask in enough faith. That you should be getting an answer right away. That you shouldn't have to wait. That if you didn't get what you wanted, well, something's wrong with you. The text doesn't say something's wrong with you. But it just seems to be that God seems to have his timing that's beyond our capability to understand sometimes. And 20 years is a long time to be waiting, especially if you know some of the promises of God are hinged on that. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. Yeah, absolutely. Like LeVette said, kudos to them for waiting. And it serves as an example to us to persevere in prayer, mm-hmm. to keep praying. And just because you're not getting the answer you're looking for today doesn't mean tomorrow don't wake up and keep praying the same prayer. Mm-hmm. Keep praying. Mm-hmm. 20 years. Yeah. 20 years, keep praying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Verse 22, that word there for the children struggled is actually a really violent word. This same word is used to describe a situation that's over in Isaiah chapter 36, verse 6, of a person who rests their hand on a reed and puts their weight into it, and the reed punctures through their hand. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's violent. That's bloody. That's it. Ooh, yuck. It's also the same word that's used of a millstone being cast off of a tower and coming down and crushing the skull of somebody down below. Mm -hmm. This is that word. So when she says, this is what's going on inside of me, she's using a, a very violent word that, that is used in other places for crushing or a violent collision or to abuse or to crush or to oppress. I mean, it's a very strong word. I've, I've seen pregnant women and like, oh, he kicked. You know, oh, I just felt her move. You know, apparently this was a little more than that. Oh, what was that? Oh, what was that? That's what I imagine is going on right here. So there's a whole lot of jostling going on or struggling that's going on inside of her. And then she utters this thing that we have in English that's made nice, right? It makes sense to us. We can read in English words what it says. But in the Hebrew, it's actually a combination of words that's clearly a question, but it's not a complete grammatically correct question. And so in Hebrew, it means why ever i <laughs> or some will translate it as why this i or if thus why then i you know so it sounds like just an exasperated gasp for what is going on inside of me so in english they they always make it nice and it's always something like if all is well why am i like this <laughs> you know something along those lines but yeah in the hebrew it's just this unintelligible utterance cast as a question <laughs> It also doesn't tell us how she sought the Lord, right? She went to inquire of the Lord. We don't know where she went to. I mean, because she could go to the temple. The temple hasn't been made yet. She couldn't go to the tabernacle. The tabernacle hasn't been made yet. Where did she go? Maybe she went to that place, Beir Roy, the place where God sees, that famous place where she ended up meeting Isaac, that famous place where Hagar met with the Lord. She could have gone there. Or maybe she went to a prophet somewhere. That's a pattern that we do see in the Bible. But we don't know how she found out from the Lord the next verse, all right? The next verse is an answer from the Lord, telling her, here's your situation. Somebody might read in verse 23. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two rival nations. One nation will be stronger than the other. The descendants of your older son will serve the descendants of your younger son. Excellent, thank you, LaVette. So we don't know how she got such a specific reply. It just doesn't tell us. It's not so much concerned with how she got this answer as to what the answer was. And so we have in this some, some interesting stuff. We, we have God confirming, yes, you're pregnant. Oh, and by the way, it's twins. Oh, and by the way, it's twin boys. All right. And it seems that God knows the future of these boys, right? They're not even born yet. Confirming they're not born yet? They're not born yet. They are not even born yet. And God is saying, I already know how this is going to turn out. You know what that's called? That's called foreknowledge. <laughs> God has foreknowledge. So they're not even born yet, and God is saying, I know what's going to happen. I know how this is going to turn out. Now, let me ask you a question. If Rebecca was to go out the next day and get an abortion and then have a meeting with God that afternoon, do you suppose God would say something like, oh, you had an abortion? Oh, okay, well, no big deal because that's just a massive tissue. I mean, they weren't born yet. It's just tissue. It just doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Do you suppose that would be the case? No. No. God's perspective is that life begins in the womb, that life begins at conception. And there are other places in the Bible that provide good information along these lines. Psalm 139 is one of my favorites, Mm -hmm. verses 13 through 16, where David says, For you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God forms us in the womb. Job talks about God forming me in the womb just like he made my male and female servants in the womb as a creation of God. And it's marvelous to think about God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, creating an individual in the womb we are beneficiaries of the creative work of the same person who created the heavens and the earth. And he does that before we're ever born. We bear the image of God before we're ever born and be able to say, oh, you know what? It's just a bunch of tissue because you cut it off at a certain date. That's not going to fly well with the way that the God of the universe portrays himself in the Bible. But all this talk about being born, I I can't pass up John chapter three, verses three and four. Jesus meets with Nicodemus at night. And Nicodemus says, so, you know, you're such a great leader. And Jesus says, "Uh, I tell you the truth, anyone who wants to see the kingdom of God must be born again. What a strange way to open the conversation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) He's just flattered you. Nicodemus has just flattered you and said kind things about you. And you come with this. You must be born again. Nicodemus is like "Uh, a little confused. (laughs) How am I supposed to do that? Born again? What does that mean? Am I supposed to crawl back into my mother's womb? I don't think I can do that. I'm a grown man. And you remember that, have that whole conversation where all of us are born once in the flesh. But we need to be born again and born of the spirit is the flavor of that passage as you look on there. How does this happen, that God would choose one over the other before they're even born, before they've even done anything? In fact, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9, verses 7 through 13. And he uses that passage that we've looked at here where he says the older shall serve the younger. And Paul emphasizes that it was before they were ever born. God, like we talked about earlier, he's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to do. And in the passage where Paul uses that, he says it's to preserve the purpose of God according to election. God can make election. God elects. All right. There's this area of election that has to do with God. It goes hand in hand with his foreknowledge, predestination or election. I mean, these are things that are hard to get our minds around. We just need to understand that God sees the beginning from the end. And there's something in that, that he has his plan that accounts for every possible choice we can make. And he knows the choices we will make. And somehow he arranges his plan that we participate in it with the choices that we end up making that he knew in advance what we were going to do. Yet there's nothing in our merit that deserves any credit. It's all on him and his sovereign choice. So it's just kind of marvelous to think about how that all can happen. And then in verses 24, 25, and 26, in 24, what do we find out? We find out that everything came to pass as God determined and said it would, or God keeps his promises. In 25, Esau is born, and he's hairy and red, and so his name is a play on words with hairy and red. And Jacob is born, and he's holding on to his brother's heel as he's being born, and then uh, his name having to do with the word heel and also having to do with the word deceiver, and that's going to end up showing itself later on in the story. So we looked at seven things, seven big things we looked at today. Intercession is proper. Number two, sometimes we experience long, dry spells, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're outside of God's will. Number three, everything that God has determined will come to pass. Number four, God's sovereignty, election, and foreknowledge are all interwoven. Number five, the creator of the universe creates each of us in the womb. Number six, God knows our life history before we're even born. And number seven, we must be born again if we hope to see the kingdom of God. All right, quick closing prayer. (laughs) Get you guys back to work. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your word, the depths, the riches of your word. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to continue to seek what treasures you might have for us to find. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness and complexity. In Jesus' name, amen.